have your Bible and would like to turn to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10. There's an insert in your bulletin that has the text on it if you don't have your Bible or you can use the pew Bible in front of you. There are ultimately only really two kinds of theologies uh, to relate to God through personally. If you wanted to try to whittle it down to how, how do you live for God or to God, there are two basic ways. There's the theology of glory and there's the theology of the cross. The theology of glory is you live your life always or as you think improving. So you're always getting better. And you can get better if you try. The more faith, the more work you put in, the more blessings you receive from God, the better your life goes. The more I'm giving, the more I'm blessed. We call it a theology of glory because it's really for our own glory. It's about us. The more doing, the more advancing. Right? The more dedicated, the more progress. We call it a theology of glory because it's pointing to us. That's what our Christian life is about. We're the main point of reference in the way we live for God. A theology of the cross is the exact opposite. A theology of the cross recognizes we're called to die with Jesus to ourselves. So it's the complete opposite of a theology of glory. We're granted, it's granted to us to suffer. In Philippians chapter 2, we recognize this. There's not a guarantee or even an expectation of health or prosperity or stability and all these things. We will suffer for the sake of the cross. We will die with Christ as Paul did on the cross. We're relating to God by what He has done for me rather than what I must do for Him. We called our series on Mark the Crucified King. In chapter 10, this is the last chapter before Jesus heads into Jerusalem where He's been headed now for at least three chapters. We call Him the Crucified King because He is a King and He's been a King the whole time. But now we realize this King is a servant. And so this is the last scene of this section that we've been in where Jesus explains to the disciples that he is going to the cross. They misunderstand him. There's an example of their misunderstanding. And then Jesus teaches them through usually a miraculous healing how and why they are wrong and what they must understand in order to actually be his disciple. This is the king who is a servant. This is the king who is about to die. Jesus taught his disciples more about what greatness looks like in his kingdom by refusing the request of James and John to sit on either side of him since to be great in the kingdom of God, one must be a slave to everyone, not anyone's Lord or seeking to Lord over anybody. Even Jesus himself, the Messiah of God, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And a blind man named Bartimaeus, remember this section in chapter 8 started with a blind man. It ends with a blind man named Bartimaeus displays the posture and attitude of a true disciple of Jesus by begging for his mercy and for his healing. Our desires, beloved, and we all have them. This is for every single one of us. Our desires to make our life of faith a pursuit of our own personal glory must be overshadowed by the recognition of our need for Jesus to serve 
us through the cross on which He paid our ransom. Let's pray and I'll begin. Father, thank You for this moment You've given us this morning. Thank You for this passage. Thank You for Your Son. Take over my mind. Remind me the entire time I'm speaking of how badly I need You. Cloud out the things that would distract me and make me preach for my own glory or for my own personal reasons, Father. For we need to see Jesus. So please help us all to do that, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. There in verse 32, Jesus, Mark gives us this very strange detail that he's walking ahead of them. It's like he's in a hurry. He is resolute, beloved. He will get to Jerusalem. Nothing can stop him. He has to get to where God has called him to die for sinners. He has to get to Jerusalem. So the people around him, the disciples are amazed. The crowd following following him is afraid. Why are they amazed? They're amazed at how resolute he is, how devoted he is to get to where he keeps saying he's going to die. You would think you'd want to take your time. Jesus is in a hurry. He can't be deterred. And the rest of them are afraid. He's been talking about this. The word is getting around that he's going to suffer there and die. They're afraid of what might happen to him. So in verses 33 and 34 now, as he's about to get to Jerusalem, his description of what's going to happen to him, this is the third time He describes it to the disciples, gets much more descriptive. There's much more detail as he gets closer. He even says he'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. No wonder they were afraid and amazed to be delivered over out of the hands of the people of God into the hands of the Gentiles in their minds is like being cursed and forsaken by God. It's like being the scapegoat when the blood from the sacrifices was splattered on the scapegoat and it was sent out into the wilderness outside the camp. This is where Jesus talks like he's going outside of the realm of God's protection and care. But he will be resurrected from the dead. Jesus lives by a theology of the cross. Look at how the cross drives everything he's doing, everything he's saying. It shapes the suffering he will experience there. Shapes his entire existence and his entire life on the earth. He's... He is Jesus. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And he isn't living like anything is owed to him but faith. He's come to die, to give his life away. So now come or comes the further and maybe the worst misunderstanding of his disciples in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You have to admire their candor, right? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you go back up to verse 35, this request is a demand. It reads much more like a demand than it does a request. Desire for glory, however we want to attain it, in whatever way we want to have it, makes us irrational. They are demanding from Jesus a grant. How do you demand a grant, but they do. In verse 36, Jesus is revealing, he's showing them, I'm the servant. So what do you want me to do for you? They, it's an absurd request. It's an absurd request. They want places, the ultimate places of power and recognition. They wanted glory. So they do think Jesus is a servant also, but they think Jesus is a servant for their glory. One commentator said they think of him apparently as a cosmic bellhop who's just there to meet our demands, meet our requests. Don't you love it when demands are given as requests? Right? That's what they're doing. In verse 38, he's talking about the cup of his passion, the death, the suffering he's about to experience, and the baptism of God's wrath washing over him in waves. Beloved, the wrath that should have been poured out on us will wash over Jesus in waves. And he asks them, He knows they don't understand what he's been talking about or what they're asking. Are you able to drink this cup? Are you able able to be baptized with this baptism that I'm about to be? He puts them to the question about their desire to serve him. He's asking them again, how do you want me to serve you? Are you going to do what I'm supposed to do? Is our Christian life a pursuit of? of trying to figure out how to do for ourselves what only Jesus can do. Is that what it is? Is our righteousness an attempt to be righteous? Is our good works, are they an attempt to make ourselves acceptable to God? Are all the things we want to do, are they for His sake, for the sake of His people, or are they really underneath for our sake? That becomes very evident. That becomes very Evident why people are serving and who they're serving and why they're serving. If it was about Jesus when it went away, they would be happy. When it's about them and it goes away or they don't have the opportunity, they're angry. Why? Because they're finding their identity in their service, not in Christ. Is our Christian life a pursuit of doing for ourselves what Jesus came to do and to be? For us. In verse 39, the only thing more absurd than their demand 
is their answer. Yes, we are able. We can drink that cup. We can be baptized without baptism. It's amazing what we think of ourselves. Right? I, I can do this. I, 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 I don't know how you'll feel about this, but I, I, I like the sound of rap music. All right. I'm sorry. I always have. I grew up around it. I just like it. So several years ago, there was this big resurgence of, or, or I don't even know if you could call it a resurgence. There was never a surgence of, of uh, gospel rappers that had this very deep theology. And one of my favorites named Lecrae, he, there was a great song on a guy named Tadashi's album called Go Hard about, uh, you know, dedicating to the Lord and taking it seriously. And so the loop was go hard or go home. And the first verse Lecrae says, the first line is, Lord, kill me if I don't preach the gospel. Still in my 20s, but I'll die if I got to. I'm already dead. Forget my flesh. And on and on it goes. Today, Lecrae has completely compromised the gospel, preaches social justice, has abandoned Christ, at least in his music. I can't speak for his heart. But his platform is no longer about preaching the simple and pure biblical gospel. I thought he was willing to die for it. Yet you don't need to say it. We don't need to sit. Why are you telling me? I die for Jesus. Are you sure? Are you sure? And why would you do that when he died for you? Oh, it's not that we may not die for Christ. The question is, why would we do that? Why would we give up our lives? Why would we give everything to him? We sing that hymn, I surrender all. It's a lie. We just sing a lie. I surrender all. No, you don't. Right? I surrender nothing. Lord, save me. Right? The only thing more absurd than the demand is the answer. And Jesus says, oh, you you will partake in what's happening to me. You'll partake of it as the beneficiaries of it. You will drink the cup and that you will, my blood will be upon you and in you. And you will be baptized in the sense that the wrath that was meant to wash over you will wash over me and you'll be in me safe from the storm. But filling those seats, he says in verse 40, that's not mine to grant. He's telling them this has already been appointed by my father. So verse 41, we should probably read as a bit of an understatement, right? The other disciples, the other 10 are indignant. Why were they indignant? Is it that James and John asked before they did? Those were the seats they wanted, or is it just that they're angry because you know how it is to be around, you know, demanding arrogance. It's uncomfortable. You, you, you don't like it. And so maybe it's that they're just indignant because they're acting this way. It's hard to say, but in verses 42 to 44, Jesus calls them to himself and he teaches them something about authority here because he knows that's what James and John really, James and John really want. They want the authority, the status of that place. They also want the glory. Jesus says, there's a way that the Gentiles I'm about to be turned over to, remember, back in the beginning in verse 34. He says, but there's something about the way they view authority. It isn't going to be like that. Their authority is oppressive. They lord over those who are under their rule. They misuse their power. They abuse it. They're unwilling to serve people. There's no sense of responsibility. They get by on the backs of Poorer people and lesser people. That's how they build themselves up and make themselves no or so great. And Jesus says, it's not going to be like that in my house. Your, your demand is off base. That's not what I'm doing here. 
That's not why I've called disciples to myself. It's not the great who are first. If you understood me, you'd be begging to be at the back of the line just so you could be in the line. You wouldn't be asking to sit in places of authority and glory. That's granted by the Father. That's not like a, like a little trinket I hand out. It's not those with recognition who are great. Notice the Gentiles pick their great ones to rule over them. Why? Because we're attracted to glory. We're attracted to charisma and to status and to what looks good and right and is good looking and is strong and is powerful and is bold and can achieve and all this. They pick the great ones to rule over them. Jesus says, I don't. I don't. It's not like that in my kingdom. It's the servants who are great. It's the slaves who I would think of as great. Why? Why is it like that in the kingdom? Is it just a matter of ethics? That it's more kind, it's more humble to welcome the slave or to be like the servant rather than arrogant? Is it it just ethical? No, 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 no. It's because everything about the kingdom of Jesus is meant to display Jesus. You would be like this, he says, For, because even I, the head of this thing, with all glory and power, have not come to be served. I don't view people like that. They're not here for me. I'm here for them. I'm on my way to Jerusalem on purpose because I'm a servant. And I didn't come to be served, even though I'm the Son of Man, the Lord, the Messiah of Israel. I rule over all of this, and I didn't come to be served. Who are you that you would want to be in a place to be served? Why do you think like that? I came to serve, not be served, and give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to give us reasons For claiming glory. He didn't come to position himself as this genie who just doles out everything we would want if we didn't know Jesus anyway. Glory, status, stability. What's divine about those desires, beloved? The world has them. That's what everybody is after. Glory, money, fame. If it's not fame, if it's, then it's privacy. Right? Because you're so, maybe, maybe our thinking is that the rest of people are so messed up, I don't want to be around them. So for me, glory is separation. Who, who knows? But to pursue glory, to pursue power, to pursue wealth and recognition and all these things, that's the world. That's what makes the world the world. The world didn't come to serve. The world came to be served. To take life as the ransom for me. To take blood so that I have life. Not to give it. You step on whoever you want. We step on the people we love the most to get what we want. Sometimes glory doesn't mean being the head of a record company or the president or something or a king. Sometimes it means making sure everybody in the house knows that I'm number one. So we do all kinds of things to make sure we're worshipped as number one. But we take, take, take. Why? Because we lack glory. We know we lack it. So we got to use other people, use other things to get it. Not the Son of Man. The pre-incarnate, eternal Son of Man abides with the Father in all the glory that He had with Him before the world ever existed. When we came on the scene, He lost nothing. Jesus is trying to say, I don't need anything from you. Stop trying 
to give me things when I have everything and stop thinking that I came so that you would have everything I've denied myself and never had. No place to lay his head. Foxes have holes. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. Son of man doesn't have those things. He did not come to give, but to receive, beloved. That, this teaching here in the middle of Mark 10 is what is meant to shape our attitude as Christians towards other Christians and the lost as well. This teaching. There are people to serve, beloved. People are not there to get and to take from. They are there to serve. Why? Because Jesus Christ is a servant. If we want glory, we will not be able to follow Jesus. Right? If we want glory, if we're following Him for glory, we're not going to be able to follow Him at all. We might see, but we won't see. People will look like trees walking, right? Trees are in the way. You cut them down. You pick their fruit. You plant them where you want. If we want glory... We're not going to be able to follow Jesus. So we're either going to abandon him or we're going to form Christianity in our own image. And what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus will look amazingly like us and what we want. Jesus came to serve us by being a ransom for us. Jesus came to serve us by doing everything for our salvation so that we would need to do none of it, beloved. That's not what following Jesus is. It's not paying back a loan. It's not earning your Christianity. It's not earning your standing before God. It is the life of freedom in the benefit of the perfection and sufficiency of Jesus for us. And if we keep looking at the commandments that are given to the church as a means of gaining our standing with God, they will not be obeyed. Right? They will not be done consistently. They will be done for our own glory and our own reasons, which will taint all of them and everything we are and everything we do. He did not come to get from us, but to give to us. So to do a role reversal and say, no, 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 I understand that you want to pay, but I'll get it. It's blasphemous. It's blasphemous to do a role reversal and say, no, 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 I'll be the servant. You be the receiver. Let me give to you, God. You gave everything for me. The least I can give is what? This is the least I can do. Beloved, don't we hear when we say that what we're saying? Literally the most piddly thing I can give, I give that to you. Now, here at the climax of this section. It opens as the other three parts of this section did. Jesus talks about his death. The disciples prove they completely misunderstand it. And then there's a miracle to show exactly what he's talking about. So pick it up in verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when he heard, or verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. There's been a lot of that for people that wanted to get close to Jesus in this section. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now this is New Testament Jericho. This isn't the Jericho that was destroyed under or in the Old Testament. This is about 18 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a a city in the desert, like a little oasis. It was a thoroughfare as people traveled to Jerusalem, especially during the time of Passover and things like this. So if you were a beggar, this would be a perfect place for you to go because tons of people are going to be passing through it and people with means are going to be passing through it. And we meet another blind man, another person who can't see. If anything has been revealed about the disciples here and their hard-heartedness, it's that they can't see. So we have another blind man. And in verse 47, why is it that the blind see Jesus so well? Son of David, have mercy on me. This man does two things here. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of David, promised under the Old Covenant. And he knows, therefore, how he should respond to him. Have mercy on me. As always in verse 48, or as we've seen, comes the rebuke for begging. Right? It's not nice to beg. It's rude. There is the attempt. It never fails by well-meaning people. Don't bother him. Don't bother him. That thinking is not purely benevolent. That thinking, don't bother him, is implying I'm not bothering him. I'm not going to go to him and ask for stuff. That's rude. It's embarrassing. So be quiet. You're interrupting. Not if one sees him as a servant, they're not interrupting. Not if one knows that's who he is. That No, no, no. He, he welcomed children. He, he put children on his lap. Like, this is... He's a servant. I'm, I'm going to beg. I, all Bartimaeus has to give to Jesus is, is his need. That's all Bartimaeus has. I, stop, stop. You have to help me, please. Right? That's all he has. So a servant is the only one Bartimaeus can approach. Begging is the only hope he has. Maybe I've um, shared this with you before. I have on some level. When I was young, we lived in um, government-subsidized apartments most of my life. But my dad... Worked on the railroad. We, we, it was just me and then eventually my sister. And we had a lot of money and things were really well. And then my dad was saved by God's grace. And 
got some bad counsel, which I, I'm not trying, I'm not blaming anybody. That's not what I mean. It was just my dad told a, a pastor, I, I feel like he's like been saved for like six months. I feel like I, I should be a preacher. And the guy said, well, then quit your job and start preaching. So my dad did. He thought that's what he's supposed to do. So he, he, my dad would ride his 10 speed bike to work because our car broke down. He, he would ride a 10 speed 24 or, you know, whenever it was that his shift was, he worked at Swan Cleaners as a drive cleaner. He, he would ride his bike or catch a ride with somebody up to the Mount Vernon Nazarene College so he could get his training. That was my dad. Well, we were very poor. He ended up being a maintenance man working that. And so we were on food stamps. We didn't have very much at all. And once a month, I would get on the Coda bus with my mom and eventually my little sister in her little stroller or car seat. And we'd go down to the welfare office and we'd wait in line outside like everybody else in a big line at the welfare office. Everybody knows that's who it is right in the middle of downtown Columbus. And we'd wait in line to get our to sit down with the lady, the caseworker and get justify your need for food stamps for the month. That's how it worked at the time. You're not that nobody in that line felt glorious, right? I mean, no, that that's not a place. Why would you do that? Why would you wait outside like my mom did in line? I love my mom. I love my dad. They they just. But why would you do that? Why would you stand in line in front of all you know downtown Columbus where all the workers are going because your kids need to eat? So there's no pride there. You have to swallow it. You, you have to sit down in front of a lady that thinks you're lying and just thinks that you're on this because you don't want to work and try to convince them every month at the time, this is what we're making, this is what my husband makes, he works, we have this, you know, this is our need, this is where we go to school, all that stuff, because your kids are hungry. All delusion of any other, you, you just, you have to swallow it and say, I, I, I'm going to wait in this line and be embarrassed and this noisy, loud people fighting, arguing, because your kids need to eat. You need to eat. There's something that it does to you in your mind, some good, some very bad, when your only grasp of reality is the need that you have. When you need someone else's help to eat, it's a very humbling and difficult experience. I'm sure many of you have dealt with this at some time in your life. Some of you have heard the stories about growing up and how you didn't have much at all. And so you know, many of you, how this feels to just have need and not be aware of anything else. So glory is the farthest thing from your mind. Beloved, this is the posture, the mindset of the one who understands they need Jesus. It's a physical picture. Bartimaeus is a literal physical picture of how we must be spiritually in order to follow Jesus. It's, it's not something we can perform the goal is, okay, so I've got to be more humble and then Jesus... No, no, no. It's a recognition of your utter bankruptcy. Because if I tell you your problem is that you need to be more humble, you know what you're going to do? You're going to try to be more humble. A theology of glory. I can do this. I'm supposed to be more humble. All right, I'll be more humble. That's not what the command is for. The command is not meant for you to perform. It's meant to show you how holy and righteous and good the standard of Almighty God is and how far you are from and utterly unable of meeting it so that you realize I'm blind. I'm lame. I have nothing. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. It's not to hear, oh, that's the way. 
If I follow Jesus, my marriage goes good. My kids turn out perfect. I get a great job. I always get the raise. Every, I don't get sick. I, I, the, the better I do, the more if I put God first. Again, whatever that means. If I put God first, the, you, I, 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 I. There's no blindness there. You can see yourself perfectly. Look, do you remember in verse 32, Jesus is walking ahead of them. We get that detail in chapter 10. He's in a hurry. He's resolute, devoted. I have to get to Jerusalem. Then a blind man yells out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. He stops. It's a beautiful thing. I just heard need. Stop. Stop. He's a servant. He invites the needy. Even on the way to the cross, Jesus doesn't think so highly of himself that he doesn't have time to stop for a blind man in need. He's showing his disciples, this is what the Son of Man does, and you want to sit at my right hand and my left? No, no, no. We stop for blind people. Begging me. Verse 50, the man's hope is pure. It's unashamed. I mean, what did it look like when a blind man throws off his cloak? The only thing presumably that he had and runs to Jesus. Are people helping him? Is he just, how does he get to him? But he gets to him. Any way possible, he gets to him. He needs him. And the servant asks the same question he asked in verse 36. Do you see that? One came to Jesus or two came to Jesus with a demand. We want places of glory and status and power in your kingdom. What do you want me to do for you? Give us those seats. One man, blind, stumbling, finds a way to get to Jesus after screaming for him to have mercy on him. To him, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you, the blind man asks for what he lacks. What he does not have, but more importantly, what he cannot fix. I can't do anything about my blindness. We could get mad at him. Well, you could work. You could do something. You could. You don't have to sit around and beg. Maybe so. But I mean, I can't recover my sight. I'm, I'm blind. What can I do for that? I need Jesus. Let me recover my sight. I can't see. You can give me sight. You're the son of David. Have mercy on me. Be merciful to me. And in verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Faith makes us well. Do you know what the truest worship you can give to God is? Repentance. Repentance. To beg for mercy. Nothing recognizes who God is like begging for mercy. Nothing. All other forms of worship. Listen, I'm not putting any of them down. Singing, all, the, that, all beautiful, all wonderful to do. That's not my point here. I'm saying they're all a, a coming from a desire, which is a good desire. Lord, I want to worship you. I want to honor you. Right? Beautiful thing. Always have that, beloved. This, this kind of worship, 
This is the only kind of worship, repentance, faith that says, just save me. And in so doing, what are we doing? We're finally recognizing Jesus for who he said he was in verse 45. Finally, really only then. Again, it's not that the other worship is automatically sinful because it comes out of a desire to please or to honor God. That's a good desire most of the time. But beloved, the highest worship you can give, the purest worship you can give, that isn't tainted by anything in you, is repentance. It's faith. Look, it's all you. I have nothing here. I have nothing. When you come in here and you've had a bad week and you've struggled or you had an argument with your spouse this morning and you feel like, I can't even sing, I can't even pray, now you're in a position to worship Jesus for who He is for you. Why do we think we're only worthy to worship when we've made ourselves presentable? Beloved, the goal is not to be unpresentable. The goal is realizing that at my best and my cleanest, it's nothing. I am in as much need for Jesus if I've had a sinless week, if I've had a week filled with immorality. It's not about you and me. It's not about, well, don't use our goodness. So, so am I just supposed to sin as much as I Why is it about you? No, you're not. Nobody's, we don't try to sin, but we will. So just stop with all that. Well, yeah, but mercy. We need mercy. Because when we're talking about getting serious about sin, you know what we're talking about? The sins we're aware of. Not the ones we, we there are ways we dishonor God we're not even aware of. We always come to Him dirty. Just bank on needing His mercy. Faith is the one thing about us. That, Lord, I I can't do this. You have to do it. Son of David, have mercy on me. It's really the one thing we do that shows we're in need of being served. Instead of serving. Faith saves. Faith comes to Jesus. or, Or faith realizes that Jesus is the servant, that Jesus is the beneficiary, or Jesus is the benefactor, and I am the beneficiary. If Jesus comes to us as a servant, we cannot go to him as one, right? We can't reverse the roles. And notice what this man does at the end of verse 52. He follows. I'll go where you go. You're going to the cross. I'll go with you to Jerusalem. I just want to be around you. So, I want you to take a moment when I ask this. Don't answer out loud. And I want you to think, okay, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Why are you following Him? I'm not telling you you're not following Him and you're not saved. I'm not the Holy Spirit and I'm not your judge. I'm asking you, why are you following Jesus? What do you want him to do for you? And if he didn't do it, would you still want him? If somebody else could give what Jesus apparently isn't pleased to give you, would you follow them? What do you want him to do for you? Jesus doesn't want what we have. We need what he has. He has no needs to be met. So all he does is serve. How I serve is a matter of what I recognize about Jesus. I'm not giving anything to him. He has everything I have. 
He owns it. It's his. He's sovereign. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has met all of our needs so that we don't seek glory from others. He gives us everything so that we no longer lack anything. So therefore, we can do what he said. We can serve others and give because we don't need anything from anybody. We don't have to take from anybody. Jesus is my identity. He's my perfectly faithful, loving spouse. He, he, I lack literally nothing. If I die, I'm with him. If I suffer, he's with me. Right? I lack nothing. This is what Jesus has done. As we continue as believers to get something that we think we lack from either how we're living or how we're acting or what we're doing, we're reversing the roles, beloved. No wonder we can't be consistently holy. We're trying to be the servants. Jesus is the servant. We don't have the horses for this. He has them all. Let Jesus be the source of your glory. Don't try to find it elsewhere. The children in this section that we've seen in Mark, the children, the ones who can't see, the ones who only have need, they're the only ones in this section that see Jesus properly. It's those that are physically closest to him that don't. So we are not automatically at an advantage because we're in church when the doors are open. I encourage that. It's great to gather with the saints. It's great to be reminded of how transcendent God is like we can when we gather together. But Beloved, let's be careful that we don't do what the disciples did and think that by being here we've earned something and merit something that the people out there don't have. No, no, no. They're crying out. Jesus has us here to listen. But if we're preoccupied with what we want Jesus to do for us, we're not going to hear them. And we're going to continue to think everything's about this building and our status here. And Beloved, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, See, I I thought I was supposed to serve God. Let the one who serves do so in the strength that God supplies so that in everything he may get the glory. That's not doing something and saying when you're done, just so everybody knows, it's all God, it's all him, right? No, that is realizing that even the strength, even my serving is his service to me. He's the muscles in my arms, the words in my mouth, the love in my heart. It's Him. I serve that way so that He gets the glory and I don't. Bartimaeus is the last of the 13 suppliants. They're called in Mark, beginning in 1, 21 to 28. And the man with an unclean spirit goes to the man with the legion of demons in 5, 1 to 20. It goes to Bartimaeus here in chapter 10. 13 characters who come to Jesus for healing demonstrating what? That the world is in need. Great need. In the shadow of death. In the shadow of the curse. Jesus' service to needy people elicits faith in all 13. They see Him properly. Faith that follows Jesus where He goes. That's what they show. Remember the man with legion? Let me follow you. Let me follow you. I just want to be close to you. Jesus is going to the cross, but the one in need doesn't care that that's where he's going as long as they can be with him. You want glory, Jesus. You, what did Peter say? No, no, that's not going to happen. You get behind me, Satan. What made Peter satanic? Trying to keep Jesus from serving. We'll protect you. Don't, that's not going to happen to you. We'll protect you. Ah, a theology of glory. Right? 
all Bartimaeus wanted was to no longer live in darkness. That's what Jesus is here for. So this morning, throw aside your garments. Throw them aside and run to Jesus. The greater your need, the greater your Jesus. Our desires to make the life of faith a pursuit of our own personal glory, they have to be overshadowed by the recognition of our need for Jesus to serve us through the cross on which he paid our ransom for us. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Your glory or his? This is the question. Beloved, everything you realize right now about yourself that is sinful, he came to forgive you, deliver you, wash you clean, and make you stand. The more unworthy you realize you are as you hear the words of Jesus, the faster you should throw aside your garment and come running.